Welcome to the new episode of the Bitcoin Worldview podcast. We are covering the topic of morality today. And we're going to ask the question, if we claim that Bitcoin is better money, what's our basis for saying that? More than just saying it's more practical or, or protects us uh, against inflation, etc. Those are practical reasons. But we're going to dive into the moral reasons because claiming something is good versus something else is essentially a moral statement. At least that's my, that's my claim. We can debate that. So we're going to have a little different format this time around. I have with me some good friends, Stephen from the US, Stefan from Iceland, and then myself. And we are going to take about 15 minutes each to share our point of view as for a basis of morality. I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourself a little bit. When is your turn? Share your name and uh, kind of what, what you're doing. And then dive into your case for a morality basis. I'm really looking forward to this because uh, this is a new format. And I'm looking forward to hear the case you make and ask you follow-up questions and get asked by you some follow-up questions because uh, this is what it's all about, to uh, have the conversations, make our case, and think through the questions together. I'm a big believer in that, because by doing that, we wrestle with the ideas, try things out, and together we have a stronger, stronger thought, stronger thinking tank. So with that being said, Stephen has been so kind to uh, break the ice and jump in. So I'm going to make him... Uh, Host uh, or actually, do you have any slides to share or no? Uh, no slides. All good. Just all uh, auditory, I guess. <laughs> okay. So dive in, yeah. Stephen. I'm gonna mute myself, not to disturb you. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess a short introduction. My name is Stephen from the U.S. I went to university in Tennessee. Graduated this summer with a degree in mathematics and a minor in philosophy, though if I had it, my ideal way would have been flipped and I would have gotten a degree in philosophy and maybe a minor in math, but I do still enjoy numbers quite a bit. But um, I think this is uh, quite a treat for me to get to talk about the subject because ethics is my favorite uh, area in philosophy. And so with that being said, August, you'll have to uh, reel me in if I stray outside of the 15 minute I guess, allotted time slot. So make sure I respect, you know, the time I'm given and don't rant on for, you know, an ungodly amount of time. So uh, anyways, I guess to start, um, I'll just out myself as a moral realist, as you might expect. I think that we're talking about something real when we talk about morality. And also, I also happen to be a non-theist. So I'll be presenting kind of a secular perspective on what it means to think that morality is a real thing and not just say a social construct or collective myth that we've convinced ourselves of. And maybe to start, it might help to kind of offer uh, what I see as a definition of the view that morality is something real. This is a view that we tend to call moral realism and moral realists tend to think three things. Uh, they tend to think first that Moral claims are propositions. That means that 
when I make a moral claim, I'm actually making a claim that I think can be true or false. I'm not just saying, for instance, when I say murder's wrong, I'm not just saying boo, murder, you know, or, you know, murder, I don't like murder. I'm saying a proposition. I, I, I'm saying that murder is wrong and that's something that can be true or false. Uh, the second thing that moral realists believe is that some moral claims are in fact true. So moral claims can be propositions. It's the first thing. And the second thing is some of those propositions actually turn out to be true. And one good candidate would be something like, yeah, needless murder is wrong. <laughs> I think that's a pretty safe, conservative kind of moral claim. And then the third thing, the thing that's most popularly associated with moral realism is the claim that moral claims are true in virtue of objective, mind-independent facts about the world. And what do we mean by mind-independent? What we mean is uh, when moral facts are true, they're not true because of the attitudes that people have or someone's preferences. They're true in virtue of things that aren't really up to anybody. Uh, it's just the way the moral facts are. And one consequence of this is that people can be mistaken about the moral facts. Even if everybody in the world thought that, say, slavery was morally permissible, they would be mistaken. Uh, it's, in fact, not morally permissible. And it's not morally permissible in virtue of mind-independent moral facts. They don't depend on anybody's minds and mental states. Okay, so that was moral realism. Three claims involved moral claims or propositions, some of them are true, and when they're true, they're true because of mind-independent moral facts. Now, the third claim of these three tends to be the most heated and controversial, so we're just going to focus on the third for now, which is that there exists a thing such as mind-independent moral facts, and this is kind of the thing that we're, we ask ourselves when we talk about a basis for morality. I think what we're looking for when we ask that question is, what are the mind-independent moral facts? Where do they come from? Why do they exist rather than not exist? These are the kinds of things that we're looking for when we start talking about a basis for morality. At least that's what I take the question to mean. And so from here, I'm actually going to make kind of a odd claim or a claim that might strike you as odd, which is that it's often thought that a theist has more of an advantage when explaining why there are mind-independent moral facts than a non-theist. That is to say, an atheist would have a more difficult time explaining and defending the existence of objective morality than, say, a theist would. Now, I actually think that this is a mistaken view. Um, I'll be curious to hear the thoughts of the other panelists, but I tend to think that there certainly is a challenge to defend moral realism, but the challenge is equal for both theists and non-theists. I think both of us are gonna struggle and suffer just as much to defend morality. And uh, part of the reason why I think that is because, uh, well, what do we mean when we say, what's the basis for morality? I already kind of hinted at this. I think what we're looking for is something that explains why there exists objective moral facts and uh, it, what we're looking for is something that if the world didn't have it, there would be no objective moral facts. And so for some people, it just kind of seems obvious. Well, surely a good candidate for the cause, cause of objective moral facts is going to be, say, a god or something. 
But it's here where I think uh, if we kind of pause for a second and ask ourselves what we mean by the origin or cause of objective moral facts, we might see that maybe a god doesn't quite meet the job description for what we're looking for to ground these facts. When we're looking for a basis for morality, we're looking for something that causes there to be mind-independent moral facts in the world. But could a person really be the cause of objective moral facts, uh, no matter how all-knowing or omnipotent that person is? Because think about it. I mean, whatever it is that causes some actions to be objectively wrong and others to be objectively right, it doesn't seem to me like it would be the sort of thing under anybody's control, right? Like, that's kind of the whole point of moral realism, that things are right and wrong, and it's not up to anybody whether or not that's the case. For instance, it's not up to anybody whether or not slavery is wrong. That's just the way things are. But underneath the sort of view that says God is the basis for objective morality, I think we might risk breaking this rule. I think we might risk a situation where slavery is wrong, but only because God has said so, or God has commanded it so. And if, say, God had done otherwise, maybe, you know, rewind time, and when God is making the Ten Commandments, he would write something like, well, thou shalt murder rather than thou shalt not, you know, would suddenly murder become morally obligatory rather than wrong? Well, I think we would say no. I think what we would say is that even if God said that needless murder was okay, he would be mistaken. Um, now, that might sound like a pretty bold claim, and sometimes it's heretical uh, in some circles to even suppose that God could be mistaken about anything. But I think it, uh, the whole point of moral realism is that there are some things that, whether anybody likes it or not, they're just wrong. And there's some things that, whether anybody likes it or not, they're just morally correct. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is that, uh, I mean, are we really talking about mind-independent moral facts if it's up to God what the moral facts are? I mean, it actually kind of seems like the moral facts are dependent on God's mind in this view, which, interestingly, we would have kind of like a subjective account of morality where whatever is moral is whatever aligns with the attitudes of uh, God and God's moral preferences. So really, I think we don't get what we want out of moral realism if we try to ground it in God, because what we would end up with, at least it seems to me, and I'm excited to hear maybe some pushback on this, it seems like we would end up with a subjective kind of account. And uh, one thing I'll also mention briefly, too, is there might be some theological puzzles that spill out of a view like this, too. For instance, most theists want to say something like, God is good, and for this he is praiseworthy. You know, it's, it's, God deserves praise because of how good God is. But, you know, if goodness really just boils down to being aligned with God's preferences or what God approves or disapproves of, then it seems like by definition, God is going to be good. I mean, right, unless God both approves and doesn't approve of something, then, you know, God is just kind of, you know, kind of going to be good by default. Uh, I guess the worry here is that praising God for being good is going to be like praising a bachelor for being unmarried, right? Like it's just kind of comes along with the definition 
of what it means to be a bachelor, bachelor to be unmarried. And likewise, the concern here is that if something is good, just as long as it aligns with God's preferences or attitudes, then uh, God is always going to be good just by default. Um, so really when we say, you know, really when theists are praising God for being good, uh, if they believe goodness to be just God's kind of attitudes and preferences, then it seems like all they're really doing is just praising God for being God, which at that point, uh, what else could God be, you know, besides himself? Uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense to praise God for being God, you know. Uh, so that's one theological puzzle that I think also spills out of this. And so anyways, I've talked a lot about, or anyways, I, I've given a lot of crap to, uh, I guess, a theistic grounding of morality. I, I think now it's my turn, right? It's Now it's my turn to cough up, well, if I don't think a person, no matter how omnipotent, can ground morality, uh, what can, right? What is the sort of thing that can ground morality? And it's here, I have to say, well, I can only really give one thing, which is that whatever it is, it can't be something that's under anybody's control, right? That's the point of moral realism. Whatever, whatever it is that makes some things objectively right or wrong, it can't be the sort of thing that can be uh, bent or tweaked depending on what anybody's mind is like or what it, anybody thinks or anybody's attitudes. Uh, now that's still pretty vague, and uh, it's where I have to say, beyond that, I don't really know if I have to admit uh, what is the cause of there being certain moral facts in the world. Um, maybe to make an analogy here, I also don't claim to know what is the cause of the universe. Um, so uh, to just be outright, I identify as an atheist. And uh, I'm, however, on the question of what caused the universe, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know what caused the universe, but I know there is one. And that's kind of the stance I like to take with morality, which is I don't really know why we have these moral facts, but I know there are those facts. And it's here, a very fair question would be, well, how do I know that, right? And uh, I hope the answer won't be too disappointing, but uh, to me, it seems like intuition is the best way to know this. And moral intuitions tend to get kind of like given a harder time, I think, than other intuitions. So think about, for instance, how we know an external world exists or that other minds exist. And we're not, say, the only conscious being that there is. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, those answers, however sophisticated we might make them, are going to boil down to a sort of intuition. So this argument for moral realism that I'm sketching at right here might be called the partners and guilt argument, which is to say, whatever objectionable features we might think there are about moral intuitions, well, guess what? They already exist in things like our intuitions about the external world or other minds. And uh, I don't think we would be so radical as to ditch those. So if we're gonna you know, forgive those flaws and in intuitions about the external world and other minds, then maybe we should also forgive those same flaws when it comes to moral intuitions too. So the partners in guilt argument, I have to admit, is kind of my best argument right now for moral realism, which is just to say, well, if you're gonna be hard on moral intuitions, you gotta be hard on some others that we seem to have a more difficult time letting go. And uh, so I hope, you know, that's kind of a conv convincing response, but I think I'll wrap 
my segment up by admitting something, which is that there are some difficult questions about the view I just laid out that still kind of keep me up at night, if I'm being honest. There are some challenges, and maybe some of you on the panel will raise them later on as well. And uh, anyways, I, I just sketched a defense for a secular kind of moral realist view, but I would be, I guess, dishonest if I pretended like I thought it was completely airtight or there weren't still some questions left unanswered. With that, uh, let me just ask if I did stray outside of the allotted 15 minutes. If I did, then I'll shut up. And uh, I guess that'll be my my rant for now. So you're all good. Uh, I will uh, right. let you guys know in the chat if, if, if uh, you are uh, straying above the time and, and you, all were, right. good, you good. were right on the money, my friend. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Stephen. One of the things I really appreciate about Steven, just so that I let everyone know, is that you are you're honest in what you say, and I always uh, yeah, I, I thank you, but for for better or for worse, I tend to be. <laughs> so. Well, uh, we'll move on to Stefan. Keep notes of our questions and observations. So over to you, Stefan. I'll make you host so that you can share your slides. Thank you, August. So my name is Stefan. Uh, I come from Iceland. And I'm a Bitcoiner from 2017. And what I do in my life, I'm trying to, I'm a family man and I'm a yoga teacher and a yoga practitioner. And I want to talk about the topic of is Bitcoin a yogic protocol or not? And I was studying, I was studying yoga this year to become a yoga teacher and I saw these moral codes which are actually taught in yoga and you are supposed to kind of live by these moral codes to be able to reach the full potential of be, being a yogi and I saw these similarities between Bitcoin the network Bitcoin and the Bitcoiners, how they actually act and how yogis are supposed to act. So I have been like having the, these ideas in my mind now for a few months. And it wasn't until August and I, we met uh, a few months ago at a pub and I was telling him about my ideas and he invited me to come and I'm just uh, accelerated to share these ideas with you guys because I have never heard anyone talk about this before. So is Bitcoin a yogi protocol? So first a little bit about yoga. Yoga is roughly 5,000 year old. It's a tradition that comes from India. It was first mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita. And since that time, yoga has been developing into many different branches of yoga. So we have different types of yoga. You maybe heard of Hatha yoga or Tantra yoga or Kundalini yoga. Uh, there are these different ways to practice yoga, but more or less they are all trying to reach the same thing, which is self-realization. So yoga means union or integration. It's about Yoga is about linking two separate things together. 
And most importantly, we are trying to bring the body and the mind together as one. And this is helping the yogi to connect with his surroundings better, to connect with basically everything, with nature. And this is what yoga is about. Yoga is not a religion, but it's rather a practice or even a lifestyle which is designed to help to unify body, mind, and spirit. So yoga is a way of life which allows the yogi or the practitioner to connect to a spiritual essence that does not belong to any one religion because people from all different religions are practicing yoga. And it's not about any, you know, you, there aren't any gods or, or deities in yoga. It's all about self-practice. And personally, when I practice yoga, I feel like I am fine-tuning my body. Uh, so I become more clear. I feel more clarity. So I'm like a smoother machine that is able to enjoy and experience the world better than I did than I than before. So some people might argue that okay, but you can go to the gym and do the same thing. You feel much better after that. But with yoga, it's um, a little bit different because you have the combination of doing physical exercise, breath work, pranayama, and then meditation. So all of these three things combined make yoga special in my mind. So in a yogi who is perfect, the, potence, the potency of nature flows abundantly. This is a man called Iyengar, and he was one of the first people that introduced yoga to the Western world. So he came to America in, I think, the, like the 2000, uh, no, 1950 or something like that. And he brought yoga to the Western world. And what people in the Western world think of when they think of yoga is exactly what you see in this picture. It's people doing body postures, but actually yoga is much, much more than that. And I'm going to show you right now. So if yoga is about unifying the mind and the body, the method of doing so is following the eight limbs of yoga. So we start from bottom, and we go upwards until we reach the highest level, which is union or samadhi. The eight limbs of yoga, they come from a document uh, which is called the Yoga Sutras. And they were written around 400 after Christ by a man con called uh, Patanjali. And if we talk about these steps from the bottom up, we have the yamas in the beginning as the base layer. And you can think of these eight layers, eight limbs of yoga as a tree. So we have the roots. The roots are the yamas. And these are moral codes, which I'm going to go into in more detail uh, after this slide. But after you have uh, perfected the, the, the moral codes, 
you are able to look within and purify yourself with the niyamas. So when you are with the yamas, it's more about how you act in the external world. And the niyamas is more about how you are in, the, in your internal world, if you can word it like that. And after these two steps, you go into the asanas, which are the body postures. So this is what everyone is doing in the yoga studios. But most people are not concentrating on the first steps, maybe like they should be doing. So you have the asanas, which are the body postures, and they actually help you to control your body and like loosen up your body so you're able to uh, breathe better. And with the breath, the pranayama, you are actually able to go to the next step, which is pratyahara or sense withdrawal. And the sense withdrawal is when you are able to concentrate so you are not focusing on the touch or the smell or eyesight or anything. And with this, you get focus. And with deep focus, you are able to meditate. And when you perfect your meditation, you are able to reach the highest step, which is samadhi which is the union of body and mind. So samadhi, just a little bit about that, it's described as a state of joy, peace, and unification of yourself and the mind. This is the highest state of mental concentration that people can achieve while still bound to the body and which unites them with the highest reality. So what is this highest reality? Everyone needs to answer that question by themselves, in my opinion. But for me, that is the realization that everything is united. So all is one, just like the hippies said. And we are all part of this creating force which some people call God. So we are all God, in my opinion. So yoga is, it's an art. It's a science. And it's a philosophy all in one. And it helps to join the powers of body and mind and soul for achieving self-realization through samadhi. But because we're talking about the moral codes, and this is a Bitcoin podcast, let's go on to the yamas, the root system of the eight limbs of yoga. So... The first step is ahimsa or non-violence. Ahimsa enables us to live in such a way that we cause no harm in thought, speech, or action to any living being, including ourselves. In its purest form, ahimsa is the spontaneous expression of the highest form of love, universal love, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And you can think of nonviolence not only in a way that, okay, I'm not going to cause someone violence. I'm not going to hit someone. You can actually, you know, think about it in a more dynamic way. You can think right now, like, how am I sitting right now? Am I sitting with my back a little bit hunched over? 
am I causing violence to myself by the way I am sitting right now? And you can actually go through life with full awareness like this and think for yourself, am I actually causing violence or not? And because we are talking about morals and, and the connection with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a nonviolent system. It's an opt-in participation system that no one is forced to enter. And if you think about Bitcoiners, you cannot find more or, or less violent people, in, in my opinion. They have and show everyone that is participating in the system with a sense of belonging that is uh, very special. And you cannot say this about many groups of people in the world, in my opinion. So something to think about. And the next yama is satya or non-lying. The word sat translates to true essence or true nature. It also means something that is pure and unchangeable. Can you see the connection with Bitcoin already? So sat also means that uh, it, it means that which exists, that which has no distortion, that which is beyond time, space, and person. And it also means fact and reality. And with Bitcoin, we of course have the Bitcoin ledger, which is 100% truth. And no one is um, thinking that it is otherwise. It doesn't matter if you're participating in the system or not. The Bitcoin ledger always spits out 100% truth every 10 minutes with each block that is produced. And you can think of uh, not only the Bitcoin system, but the, the Bitcoiners themselves. I mean, Bitcoin maxis, we, are, we can be quite um, aggressive in the way we speak. And maybe that is a little bit violent or not. People, people need to uh, think about it themselves, but we actually we speak the truth. So when we say have fun staying poor and stuff like that, uh, we need to think about that we are, you know, saying the truth. And I'm going to continue because I'm, my, my time is short now. The third yama is asteya, and that means non-stealing. But in the deepest level, it means abandoning or the very intent or desire to possess or steal anything. And Bitcoin, as we know, is very critical of the fiat system, which is stealing our purchasing power. It is stealing our time. We are critical of shit coins, which are you know stealing everything and pulling pulling the rug of innocent people that don't know better. And Bitcoiners, we have a realization of the worth of possessions, time, and energy, unlike people that are not. Uh, uh, knowledgeable about you know time time preference you know high high and low time preference okay so the fourth one is brahmacharya and brahmacharya is actually the preservation of your vital energy so you have the Bra brahmans in 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 indian uh, culture and they you, they are celibate people celibate men so they don't 
perform any sexual acts and they preserve their seed and their sexual energy. And this is something that the Bitcoin network is maybe doing. They, they use the energy of the world in the most efficient manner as possible to create something extraordinary, just like the Brahmins were, are, use, uh, are able to do. And the fifth one is, is uh, Aparigraha, which means non-attachment, non-accumulation and non-greed. And this is maybe something that is uh, most like difficult to connect with Bitcoiners, or is it? Uh, we have Michael Saylor, which said well, at one time, uh, I go to sleep every night thinking that I don't have enough Bitcoin. So there is an element of greed in, in the Bitcoin community, but also you can think of it as people living a minimalistic lifestyle and people that are helpful, they're willing to give their time to other people just to help them. And they are able to, Bitcoiners are also trying to help themselves with self-care. They start to eat better foods, do exercises and, and everything like this. And I'm seeing that my time is uh, a little bit short right now, but this is something that I had not a lot of time to explain, but I hope that you kind of get the, get the picture of what I'm trying to share with you. And maybe we can discuss this further right now or after August's presentation. Thank you, Stefan. I made uh, a lot of notes. So, <laughs> interesting. If I would have had like 30 minutes, it would have been more detailed, but <laughs> I hope you got the picture. <laughs> yeah, we, well, perhaps you can clarify. Uh, so the central question here that I start with is, can you be good without God? That's a spin-off from the, asking the question, what is a solid basis for morality? So if we think about that question, there's another question we can, we can ask. Can you be good without believing in God? And uh, those two questions have slightly different answers, even if they are very similar. For the first question, can you be good without believing in God, the answer is clearly yes. You can be good without believing in God. We have plenty of uh, religious people who are really bad, even if they claim they believe in God. And we have plenty of skeptics and atheists who are really good people and have solid moral conduct. But the second question is a bit more tricky. Can you be good without God. So I'm going to dive a little further into that. And here's a statement. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? And I want to reference uh, the first topic uh, we covered on this podcast, which was asking the question, does objective or fixed truth exist? And objective truth is something that is always true in all times and all circumstances. And now we're kind of building on that and taking a step further by discussing objective moral truths. For example, 
saying that Bitcoin is better money, uh, that is a, a moral statement. You know, most people see that if they study Bitcoin hard enough. But to make a solid case why something is objectively good or making a claim that uh, objective goodness exists is a bit more hard. So here's a statement. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Let that sink in. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. That doesn't mean that a, a person that doesn't believe in God can't benefit from holding objective moral values. But that person may not be able to make a case why they exist or why someone else should behave that way. There, there is a difference. So without some objective reference point, we really have no way of saying that something is really up or down. Everything becomes relative, objectively speaking. Uh, so, or morally speaking, everything becomes morally uh, relative. What we have when we, when, when God is there in the picture is that we have this uh, God's nature so in who he is, we have an objective reference point for moral values because God is good, because God is love, because God is patient. We have objective uh, reference point for, for moral values. So his uh, nature or who he is becomes the standard to measure all actions and decisions. Now, if I'm lost in the forest and uh, I'm trying to find north, having a compass that just points to me doesn't help me. I need a compass that always points north. That's the whole point of a compass uh, in, in the first place. That's why having a solid objective uh, basis is vital. So... On the flip side of that, if there is no God, all we are left with is uh, one's pers one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than uh, another person's viewpoint. And that kind of morality is, is subjective morality. And that means like your preference for a chocolate ice cream. If, if you like chocolate ice cream, the preference is in the subject, not the object, meaning that preference does not apl apply to other people. And in the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. subject. Uh, so subject morality is not valid or binding for anyone else. You can, sitting, you can be sitting in a group of people and you say, I think this is right. And uh, that's all, all well and good. But unless you can make uh, an objective case solid case why every, everyone else should behave this way you're just talking about uh, subjective morality here's an example from uh, Mitch, mr richard dawkins uh, he claims in a universe of electrons and selfish genes blind physical forces and genetic replication some people are going to get hurt other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. 
And his closing is uh, interesting. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, Richard uh, claims uh, atheism and on that basis makes this statement in consistence with his atheistic uh, worldview. Now, obviously, there are eight other atheists uh, that, that have a different stand, but from the sound of it, the way he puts it, he is consistent in his uh, conclusion. Here's why, here's the case for why God's nature and who he is uh, is a basis for morality. God has expressed his moral nature, who he is, as commands. For example, saying, you shall not steal. That's a command. And these commands provide the basis for moral duties, why we ought to behave in a certain way. Let's take another example. God is love. That's an essential attribute of who God is. Uh, so the command follow, follows, love your neighbor as yourself. And this command provides a foundation for us to confirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And on the flip side of that, enables us to condemn as objectively evil, greed, abuse, and uh, discrimination. Now, here comes uh, the dilemma that uh, I think my friend uh, Stephen uh, may have referenced. Is it good because God wills it? Or God wills it because it is good? And interestingly enough, to resolve that dilemma, it's actually neither. It is God wills something because he is good. It's not that he wills it. It's not because he wills it that it is good or he doesn't will it because it's good. He is good in who he is. The objective uh, moral values flow out of who God is. So if you take a given moral action, the closer a moral action confirms to God's nature, the better that moral action is. And also, if there is no God, there really are no moral duties. Who should lay moral duties on us once God is gone? Then you don't have his essential attributes. You won't have the commands. And if you don't have the commands, you don't have the foundation for us to confirm objective goodness. And following that, if there is no God, then essentially humans or man is simply a differently evolved animal. And the animals don't really have any moral obligations. For example, the, the dogs in my town here in Iceland, they, they don't have a weekly meeting to discuss how to improve human rights. You know, that's not something they, they talk about or, or are, are interested in. Moral questions are, is the area of humans, not dogs. And if there is no dog, then human behavior should be treated in the same way. No action should be considered really morally right or wrong. Humans would simply do whatever they want as they see fit. And if I decide to rob another human being to advance my own wealth, I'm simply beating them in the Darwinian competition of being stronger than they are. Tough luck. But the reality is that 
most of us realize that good and bad do indeed exist. Uh, and most people, or I would even say everyone, cries foul when wrong. Irrelevant of worldview. So that's, that. in other words, our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real. And if you doubt that, just try jumping off a building. Well, please don't do that, but, but you, get, you, you get the picture. And our, likewise, our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. So there's a real you know, sense of, of, of coherence between our sense experience and our moral experience. They both point to objective reality. So if your house is broken into while you're away or if you're not at your house right now, you will cry foul. Most probably, regardless of the basis of your morality, if you believe in God or not, etc. And in the Bitcoin world, for example, we cry foul when 40% of the dollars in circulation came into circulation in the last 12 months because it's theft. And the failing monetary systems, which this kind of this debasement is part of, these systems are pulling our nations apart piece by piece. And we can cry foul because we have a sense of what is morally good, because God is good regardless if we believe he exists or not. We can be good, even if we don't believe he exists. We may just have a harder time making a case for why humans should behave a certain way. And just make note that every time we say, hey, this is not fair, or this is injustice, we are actually affirming our belief in objective moral standards. So another example of that, you know, the fiat monetary theft, child abuse, racial discrimination, or terrorism. Are these just our personal preference when we say these are evil or wrong? Is it just a pers personal preference or opinion? Or are these things wrong for everyone always? And uh, obviously my claim is these are objectively evil things. Here's a quote from Michael Roos, who actually is an atheist. He says, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equal five. So the moral argument for the existence of God is as follows. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God does exist. So... I just want to highlight that I, I took some liberty of using notes from uh, uh, Reasonable Faith with uh, William Lane Craig, as I, as I put that together. So uh, that was my presentation, Gentle Ben. So I think I didn't uh, cheat on anyone. I think I stayed within the time, time frame fairly well. So now we'll uh, switch gears and move into uh, conversations and uh, questions. Yeah, the floor is open. What do you say? Can I ask questions or mm -hmm. am I just- Please, Marcus, shoot away. It's good to hear okay. from you. All, of, all the rest of us have been talking. So. Okay, sure. Well, well, yeah, I did have some, some thoughts from you guys' presentations, which were all very interesting. So thank you very much, each of you. 
yeah, I, I felt like my mind was racing during during each of your presentations, but during your presentation, Stephen, uh, the American Stephen, uh, I felt like you brought up a lot of, of things I've thought about in the past myself, and and August addressed a lot of them as well, and and so and so did uh, Stefan, but I had I feel like a few maybe linking things to ask you about your mind independent morality that you talked about. We've kind of had okay, now two completely opposite sort of approaches to okay, what could there be possibly outside of my own mind or 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 above my own mind in terms of the spirituality and that type of thing where it's either very self-focused or God-focused, which is sort of the opposite in my perspective. And the question I wanted to pose to you was, it seems like you're sort of in the middle between there. And I think the, the sort of space between your views and these religious views is very interesting to look at. Um, with my background as a physicist, in quantum mechanics, I know that, for example, in many interpretations of quantum mechanics, consciousness is actually related to how, how we observe actual physical properties of, say, atoms and subatomic particles and these types of things, and that there's theories that consciousness itself is actually bound up with, you know, the evolution of the universe quite literally, not just that, you know, God spoke the universe into existence. It's not stated that, that boldly in terms of the scientific community at this point, but there is that connection to consciousness. And I was wondering what you thought about that, or if you had given any thought to that in terms of the mind, independent morality type of ideas. Yeah, yeah and it's uh, also good to hear you speak. As uh, August mentioned, yeah, all of us have been yapping about, so it's good you finally uh, have, yeah, have a chance to share your thoughts. And uh, and yeah, that's that's certainly a really good and interesting topic sounds like your question hits the domain of philosophy that is uh maybe a more philosophy of mind right and specifically one big question in philosophy of mind is what is consciousness um really you know yep and uh yeah that <laughs> i think that's one of those questions in philosophy that uh it was deserving when it received its own entire field uh it is a very big question um I think what I would have to say is that uh, uh, I am uh, a, a uh, kind of materialist about consciousness. I, I think uh, that consciousness, whatever it is, is going to be something that uh, it supervenes and is brought about by uh, natural forces uh, like for any physical phenomenon, maybe quantum physics ends up being the best explanation. Uh, so this is where you actually get to a cool division of labor, right? So physicists are gonna be the ones who come up with uh, the best explanation for what physical things, if any, could bring about consciousness. And um, yeah, maybe philosophers would have to deal with, well, what, what role might other ideas of mind play like souls, for instance, uh, you know, or is there an explanatory, explanatory role for souls in a picture, but uh, I, 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 I hate to disappoint you, but I'm gonna have to say, I don't really know exactly. I, I, I haven't looked into the field of philosophy of mind enough to really have too much of a more, I guess, fleshed out stance other than just, I am kind of a materialist about consciousness. So if quantum mechanics ends up explaining consciousness, this sounds like something that I would vibe with. And <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> cool. 
not, I guess, send me can, into an existential crisis. Can I, right. can I press in on that question a little bit before you continue, Marcus? Uh, so, Stephen, would, would it be a fair statement that you lean towards saying that uh, your mind has primarily a materialistic uh, existence? Yeah, I, th I think that consciousness is something, is a physical phenomena. Right. And the things that bring it about are purely natural forces. And, and... Okay, would you, would you, do you think that your mind can actually change your brain by doing perhaps the yoga that Stefan is doing? I think, uh, <laughs> I guess it depends what we mean by changing one's mind. Um, if we mean that by certain thoughts, I can completely, I, I mean, I mean, in one way, for example, if, yeah. if you practice certain thought patterns that you will ch mm -hmm. literally change how your cells are lined up in your mind, the physics of your brain will change because you decide to to practice certain thought patterns. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's more of a question for psychologists, and it seems like the current uh state of that field is that yeah for instance yeah. habit forming yeah involves forming synaptic connections and right change right the neural so, pathways so, yeah mm -hmm. yeah i uh, yeah i think most of us would agree with that and and i think that is a case for saying that the mind and the physical brain are two different things because if they were completely the same thing this you know the one and same thing can't change the one and the same thing you know you need to have some differentiation between them if one is supposed to change the other you know so that's basically my you know a case for yeah. not a proof obviously but a case in point that there is some difference between the physical mind and our soul so to speak you know yeah yeah that's definitely a puzzle for the materialist yeah. view um I think the quick and dirty answer I would give is just, I, it seems like the mind and the brain are different things, right. but maybe uh, the mind uh, supervenes off of the brain. So maybe similar to how music is different from a radio, uh, a radio can play music. You know, the music kind of supervenes off of the physical components of a speaker and circuitry. But, but there is certainly a lot more to dive into there for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I did your question justice in just a few seconds, but that was fine. No, okay. um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I have uh, the privilege to carry on, but, but the, yeah, guess... it's the floor is free. We, we have about okay. 30 or more minutes to, to talk. So, so feel okay. free. Awesome. Okay. Well, I really like the word use supervenient. There's like prevenience where that, that's a uh, supervenience in time. And then there's supervenience, which is the more general concept. And I think that that sort of brings us to the question of like embodiment as consciousness, which says that basically, okay, that the, the relationship is one of supervenience between um, mind and, and brain, I guess. If that is the case, then when you're trying to say, okay, they're two separate things or they're the same thing, it's like, okay, well, you could almost say both, right? Depending on your perspective and how you want to separate them out. And we get sort of back to Stefan's um, sort of that stack of consciousness he presented. You know, if you think of it as supervenient, you know, it makes sense. And so there are definitely relationships between each of the views that you guys presented. I'm personally a Christian. So my view is 
that there are relationships between all of these ideas, but that ultimately the most worthwhile use of the mind and of the self is to, is to worship God and to know Jesus. And that's basically my perspective. And I think it follows basically from that, you know, if we, if we do have like moral realism as a basis and we say, okay, morality is real and valuable and important to us, then even just approaching it from a philosophical perspective and saying, okay, why is that? What is the idea from which these good morals would come would be, you know, the idea of goodness and love and these things. And so if morality is real, it really points to God. And I just think, you know, as a Christian, that reality is the witness of God and his creation. I have a question for you, Stefan. It's kind of confusing to have two Stefans. So I'm going to Stefan Ice <laughs> yeah. and Stefan USA, you know. <laughs> But uh, actually, Stefan was the first martyr, by the way. Not that I wish you for you guys, but he, he yes. was the first one. So just a case, a little nuts it. That it was free of charts, you know. <laughs> so anyway, Stefan, uh, really appreciated your exploration of identifying the the similarities between mm -hmm. the moral codes which are called the it's yamas a, it's the yamas the yeah, yamas the yamas actually I, i want to point out that you know as a christian um mm -hmm. one of the things i appreciate is that i don't have to reject everything that another idea system presents or or, or another religion because actually god has made himself known in creation And he has also written his law on the human heart. And uh, there's a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, similarities in, in, for example, there's no culture on earth that I know of where lying or stealing is a virtue. You know? Yes. Exactly. Uh, per, well, perhaps uh, in the Keynesian economic uh, central bank, <laughs> yes. you know, stealing is a virtue where they just print money yes. and steal, steal your, your uh, bank accounts, you know, purchasing power. But you, you, you get the point, you know, so when you present your yamas, you know, I go, yes, this is great, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Bitcoin represents what is good and how to actually flow and work with the world as it really is. So if you pursue these virtues and if you pursue the virtues of, of, of Bitcoin, you are working with the wiring, the hard wiring of the physical world around us. And I really believe exactly. that if the physical world, uh, as a Christian, I believe that if if I put my hand on a, on the stove, I get burned. So there's a level of of uh, guidance in the physical world uh, designed by God to kind of point us in the right direction, you know. And we can discover that without having any Bible or any knowledge of God just by exploring the world around us, you know. But here comes the challenge, kind of from me to you, because. Mm -hmm. here are the yamas but why should i pursue them beyond them being practically good for me so it, there wasn't really much in your presentation as for making a case why they are objectively true do you follow what i'm saying yes but the thing is that it's all very personal It's everything is very, very personal when it comes to yoga. So you cannot, it, it is very um, subjective if, right. if you think about it. So everything has to be subjective in my mind, at least. Right. So if you think about the example that I just gave about, you know, how, how, are, you, how are you sitting right now? If you are 
very you know diligent in being a good yogi you might be thinking that every single second of the day and you are sitting up straight and you are not doing violence to yourself but for other people it's not like that right just like in the example that Stephen, you you came with in your presentation you know when is it is it okay to kill a person in self-defense i i I think you worded it something like that, like needless murder is wrong, is something that you said. And they actually speak about this in the Bhagavad Gita, which, it, which yoga is derived from, you know, 5,000 year old document. And that is actually about this prince, which uh, is going to war and he's going to war against his uh, uncles and nephews, his relatives actually, and he's very you know upset about this and doesn't want to participate in the war. So Krishna comes to him and he actually explains to him that he needs to do this and it's like a moral duty of his, which I'm not going to put my opinion on. But right. you can, you know, this is it's this is a for, great example because Krishna is making a case why he he ought to behave in a certain manner. And you yes. just said earlier that in the yoga system, there isn't really much you should behave in a certain way. It's more personally, what do you want to do? You know? Yes. And, and because, mm -hmm. The Bhagavad Gita is like a religious text, but yoga is you know, right. different from right. that. But just to talk about a little bit the, the connection of Bitcoin and, and the Yamas. Because Bitcoin is about money and money is about transacting with other people mm -hmm. it's one of the most mm -hmm. you know fundamental ways of communicating yep. so this is going to be a big subject in how we actually live our lives yeah. how to deal with money yeah. and if you want to become a good yogi these are the the moral values which have been followed for you know, 2000 years now, because the, these yoga sutras are from like 400 after Christ. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about how yoga is a scientific method, it's a scientific method in a way that it has been, you know, exercised, you know, by individuals, endless of individuals, and right. they all come to agree on this is a good method on how to reach this final goal of self-realization so bitcoin only becomes like a part of how how you should do things so as if i want to be a good yogi i'm gonna sit straight as much as i can and not do violence to my back and i'm going to transact in the best moral money that i can find <laughs> yeah. interesting yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah if you have more questions i have because this is like i'm presenting this in like for the first time and I'm, I hope I'm making, I, I hope no, that you understand good. what I'm yeah, trying to do. It's interesting. Cool. Yeah, there's like, I guess blockchain is almost only like a, in this conversation so far, just like a commonality between the different voices here of like, okay, we, we all think this is an interesting thing, a place almost where we can, we can, we can then chat about our morality and the, the topic is morality, but um, the, the, the focus has been less about the technology and, and blockchain and, and how that yeah. implements your morality and more about this is my morality and I, and I, I love it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I think that's for a reason maybe. And I was just going to ask, do you guys see blockchain more as an opportunity to live out 
your, your preconceived moralities, or do you see it more as an expression of your preconceived moralities? Well, let me jump in while I, I, I say, think about this. So, so okay. my observation is that I have noticed that people change the way they think once they mm -hmm. start to dive deep into the nature of Bitcoin. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. When they realize that Bitcoin has a fixed supply and it's really a land grabbing game where there is just a fixed amount of land, they start to uh, align their lives to start long-term savings in Bitcoin. And they start thinking more about their future, about building a family over even generations. I'm mm. going to acquire Bitcoin to build wealth and you sustain the family in, into the future. People start to reduce the amount of, of uh, stuff they buy, you know, cheap stuff that they're just throwing away. So really, I have seen people change the way they think and actually their morals go up. Cool. Yeah, I was actually going to say the, the same thing, you know. <laughs> I think that just like speaking personally and from what I see and hear from other people that are into this space, um, it's like a mind virus that, you know, tries to make everything very clear. You know, you have a clear goal of life kind of, and they align with these morals that, um, are taught in, in, in the yoga system that I'm presenting. And, you know, I did not know about them before I knew about Bitcoin. So when I was like reading about this, you know, I'm going to, through the first yama, like, okay, non-violence. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Then non-lying. Okay. Nice. I'm like on Twitter every day and like, okay, Bitcoin is on my mind. So like, and then non-stealing and non, <laughs> then non waste of vital energies and then non-greed and it was just like whoa this is yeah this is like totally connecting with bitcoin and both the network and the culture of bitcoiners so it was kind of a eureka moment for me and i'm hoping to you know because it, there's there's like a lot of information about the, the yoga systems and and these yamas so I want to try to write out a little bit more about this. So this was just like a sneak preview into what I hope to be like. I, I do want to put something thing, out actually. before I forget, Stefan, where you were talking yeah. about greed and uh, you were saying perhaps yes. I struggle with finding uh, a connection to there. Actually, Jimmy Song uh, pointed out something interesting where he said that mm -hmm. when you restore sound money, like when you restore Bitcoin, uh, long term, you actually start to remove money from areas where the money shouldn't be. Yes. Meaning that you you money gets put in its right place. Mm -hmm. uh, simple example: here in Iceland, uh, we see lots of people buying property to protect themselves against purchasing power. So they put wealth into property. Well, property shouldn't really be used to store wealth, but to provide housing for people, right? So yes. money creeps into an area where it mm. shouldn't really be. 
and it disturbs and, society. Exactly. And this, you, you can see this in the, the, the memes of people which post their pictures like they are in their apartment with a, uh, with a, with, with a bat and their laptop yes. and nothing else because yes. they've sold everything. Yes. Because it's all junk, you know, who needs uh, Yeah, stuff? I was talking to a 20-year-old girl uh, a week ago on a flight, you know, and I just asked her, so what's kind of on your mind and on your generation mind? What, what are you thinking about? And she said, just right off the bat, I'm saving for my first apartment. You know, I'm building mm -hmm. to buy my first apartment. And obviously I told her, well, that's actually really hard because all the bank accounts, saving accounts in Iceland in the last year, at minus something <laughs> when you take into account the interest rate, the taxes and everything. So the system actually is working against this young girl saving, which is a great idea to buy uh, her, her first property. The system is working against her, you know? So that's just an example of the, the wickedness of our, uh, yeah, so. And this, this is, and this is like a, a part of the non-greed of, Bitcoiners, in my opinion, yeah. because yeah. what do Bitcoiners do in this, you know, when, when they speak to uh, people like this who are trying to save money for an apartment, they give their time and they give their experiences and they try to educate for free. Yeah. This is non-greed. Yeah. This is one of the, one of the, um, one of the yamas. Yeah. And yeah, so go on and on but <laughs> what i what i would really like to uh highlight before we end that we, we have still have about 10 10 or 15 more minutes but i i just want to highlight guys that what i really think and, and feel free to push back on this but what i really think is important is two things one uh do objective models really exist you know and two the connection between them really existing and us being able to make a strong case for that and then to be able to say to ourselves and our fellow human beings, you should behave in a certain way, not only because it's practical, not only because you will reach enlightenment or not only because it's you know beneficial for you and others, because, but because there is a case, there's a strong moral case why you should behave that way, you know? So with Bitcoin, <clears throat> we kind of make that case because Bitcoin is more sound money and you can dive into why that is, you know? But still, when you say Bitcoin is better money, you are making a moral argument where you are assuming there's a certain purpose with humanity and it's actually beneficial for us to flourish, et cetera, et cetera. So, so... I just want to underline the fact that having strong objective moral truths is really beneficial if we want to bring others with us in a certain behavior. Does, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I hope I didn't kill the conversation by making that statement. <laughs> 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 It was a bit of a wrap-up statement, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure to, to get that in before I forgot. Uh, now, Stephen, uh, the US Stephen, uh, feel free to more ask more questions. But I had one question for you. We kind of hinted at this, but 
you did spend a lot of time explaining why you did not sit on the Christian camp, but you really didn't you you didn't make a strong case or give good examples for the independent mind facts. You you did leave me with asking my in, in my mind, do they exist independent, floating in thin air? And is that enough grounding for this idea system to to hold hold water you know yeah yeah i i think uh you're right i kind of uh dished out uh critiques of other systems that built up my own i guess so let me try to make up for that uh i guess uh yeah lack in my initial presentation um maybe the uh the way to think about it is an example that you gave in your presentation uh, August, which I thought was really good, which was you mentioned that sense experience can ground our beliefs or, or at least uh, can inform our beliefs about uh, there being an external world. And similarly, our moral experience might be able to inform our uh, beliefs about uh, the existence of, say, objective moral facts. Uh, now, I might be misinterpreting what you were saying there but to me i think the defense i would give for the existence of mind independent moral facts uh would be that i think we know it's true through our moral experience um i think if any of us actually took uh, you know a sobering walk through uh auschwitz or something or, or really witnessed just a true moral evil uh we would know it would be evident to us the claim that the philosopher Michael Ruse that you quoted makes that, you know, there really are some things that are objectively wrong uh, morally. And uh, then comes the question which deserves to be asked. Well, why? <laughs> why are some things objectively wrong? What, what makes that the case? And that's where I have to say, uh, you know, I actually don't really know the origin of the moral facts or why they exist rather than they don't. Similarly, I, I don't know the origin of the physical world or why a world exists at all rather than one that doesn't, which uh, sounds like that'll be a topic that Marcus will be taking on, which <laughs> glad I don't have to try to take that one on. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think what I would say is that you're right that I don't really have an explanation for why objective moral facts exist. But I think the argument I would try to make, but perhaps it would it, it's not successful. And if it's not, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts why, um, is that I don't really need to know the origin of the moral facts to know that they exist. Similarly, I don't need to know the origin of the universe to know that the universe exists. But I don't know, do, do you find that convincing or, or do you think there might be some holes in, in the analogy I'm trying to, uh, to make there? That's an interesting point that you don't need to know the origin, but I think I'll think about that. But my initial response would be, if if uh, I ought to behave a certain way, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I need more than just that they exist, you know. Mm, yeah, and uh, I would also submit that morals is the realm of persons, because mm -hmm. only only people persons have choices and initiative you know my pen 
doesn't have a moral initiative. It cannot decide yeah. what it writes on its own, you know. So I think fundamentally, you cannot ground morality in dead material things. You have to, you have, to have a person that grounds morality. That's the way I see it. A really good and rich puzzle that moral realists have to face, which is that, well, how do these moral facts bring about moral duties? And one thing you just mentioned is that, well, if they're material facts, uh, it seems really odd to say some natural fact somehow makes, you know, brings about an obligation that, you know, it almost just sounds, you know, deeply strange. Like how could an obligation spill out of just a descriptive fact about something in the world. Um, that's where I, I don't know how much this alleviates the puzzle, but I think what I might want to say is I might want to take a non-naturalist non view uh, on moral facts. And I think what I would like to say is that moral facts are not purely natural facts. They're uh, non-natural and a little bit more spooky, I guess, a little more uh, they don't behave by the same mundane rules. And one of the things that these facts have that just mere descriptive natural facts lack is that they are normative. And normative facts are facts about what we ought to do. Um, and what I want to say is that the non-natural moral facts are special and that they generate oughts. Um, they're not just descriptive. Uh, they also tell us how we ought to behave. But I, I would be, it would be dishonest of me to say that just that response alone settles your question. Because that is one of the deeply interesting and tricky questions that uh, I, I didn't say outright. You found one. <laughs> so, yeah. Good for you. Cool. Do you want to add something, Marcus? Did you have more observations? Oh, just cool. <laughs> All right. Any any pushback or, or observations on the, what I shared, guys? Did you note something yeah, down? I have one. Uh, I just thought it was interesting when you were talking about uh, what Richard Dawkins was saying. Uh, when he was saying, you know, the, the universe that we observe shows us that you know, there is no God and, yeah. and, and, and that. Yeah. And that is totally the opposite of the method that I was presenting. So you have these eight limbs of yoga, the moral codes, you have to do the, you know, asanas, you have to do the body postures, the breath work. And this allows you to actually withdraw the senses. Mm -hmm. So you're not observing, you know, with your uh, normal senses actually so you actually you know go within and you experience something that is not being experienced in in normal life like i think that richard dawkins might be talking about or am i are you saying that uh, through yoga you're actually enriching your or, or increasing your capacity to observe the world around you or are you increasing your capacity to to kind of uh, notice who you are and your connection to the world around you? It depends on what exactly you are doing. So if you are doing 
asana, which is, you know, yoga that you see in yoga studios, people working out, you become hyper um, sensitive to feeling your body at that time, you know, at that posture that you're doing. But when it comes to you doing meditation, like many people know that are doing meditation, they, they go within and they stop to focus on seeing, hearing, smelling, and this. So they are able to experience something different. I would be obviously reluctant to put words in the Richard's mouth, mouth, but uh, I think it's fair mm -hmm. to say that he comes from a point where the only thing that exists in this world is uh, matter, energy, mm -hmm. uh, the natural forces, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like a big machine that somehow got started. He can't explain how life started, but somehow it started uh, with a small single cell you know, organism or something, and then, yeah. you know, evolving step by step into us today. And there is no purpose. There is no, uh, it's not going anywhere. It's just there. And there is no evil or good, etc. It's just, you know, and other people have, or even himself have said, Darwinism is a really crappy system to build morality. <laughs> You know, because like I hinted that, you yeah. know, if I take a, 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 a gun and I go and, and I rob a store or something, am I not the strong one? You know, am I not the Darwinian yeah. conqueror in that situation? You know, why, mm -hmm. why are you pretty, you know, criticizing me for that? And it's, I, I don't see any way of, of having that work out. So you, if you are a strong Darwinist, you kind of have to adapt another system somehow to build morality. You know, it, it seems to be. Yeah. But as, as human become more, you know, intelligent, it's the game game theory comes more into the subject. So you don't have to, you can't just buy the biggest gun and you're the strongest guy. You know, you need to think about the politics about what you're doing, you know. Okay. It's exactly those things like the politics and everything that will supervene on on what you're doing in a Dar Darwinian scenario. And so that if you take that to the limit, you'll get to, you know, arguments for guided evolution. and Exactly. So I, I just wanted to raise that point because I used to uh, read Richard Dawkins and I was like an atheist myself when I was 18. And then I did some psychedelics and that helped me to realize that there was like more to this universe. And then I started to do yoga and then I started to learn about Bitcoin. And then I started to learn like more deeply about yoga to see this information that I'm sharing with you right now. So like all of my experiences, they, they, they are allowing me to come to you today, tonight and like share what, what I think, what my subjective opinion on, on this matter. Gentlemen, this has been a, a joy to interact with you. Um, I have a few things to say to wrap this up, but uh, before I do that, uh, any final questions, observations, or, or comments? Uh, I'll just say thank you very much, August. This was very interesting and fun, a, a great discussion. 
I got disconnected a little bit uh, in when you were both speaking, Stefan and August, but I enjoyed your, your talk very much. Thank you. Very good. No, thank you both, Stephen and, uh, and Stephen <laughs> <laughs> and Marcus for your input. Really appreciated this. And uh, if nothing else, one of the things I think we've done really, really well is to model having uh, engaging conversations uh, coming from uh, different perspectives. Uh, and I really appreciate uh, uh, all of you guys, especially uh, you, Stephen, Stephen, for, for, for sharing. Um, I think uh, I want to end by just uh, summarizing that uh, we all live in this world, in the same world. And uh, regardless of what we believe about this world we live in, um, uh, I think all of us believe it is real and that our decisions have uh, real consequences. And because of that, uh, a conversation about what actually is good and what actually is bad is important because it has a direct uh, influence on our choices. As we talk about this same world that we all live in, just like the sweater that I'm wearing right now, uh, you can all see it's a green sweater, you know. So uh, this is an object in this world in a given point, a given location in time. In a similar way, as we talk about objective morality or any other topic as we are exploring this podcast, all these ideas are describing this world that is around us. And uh, yes, we can have more of a materialistic uh, worldview. Uh, but even if we talk about uh, an idea of there being a God, if God exists, uh, his sweater is of some color, so to speak. He has some properties or some attributes. And uh, that means that, for example, I cannot have both a green and a black sweater if I'm wearing a green green you know, sweater. It is either green or not. And the same way as God, as we talk about him or any, any other things, even, even if those things are not purely materialistic in nature, they have certain properties. And just as two plus two equals four, uh, we can't say that God is both this or something else at the same time. All that to say that our ideas about this world, they really matter. They really matter. And I believe, I honestly believe that by having engaging conversations like these, and as we challenge one another, and as we bring up what we believe, uh, may the best ideas win. <laughs> Just like in the Bitcoin world, may the best miner win. Uh, and in the sports, as we make a case for our ideas, uh, the hope is that the ideas that best describe this world around us that they rise to the top because the more that we align our uh, life and our ideas to what is absolutely true about this world, the better things work. And uh, that's actually why Bitcoin works so well because it's built on ideas that fundamentally are describing the world the way it really is. 
And when you do that, the things work. So thank you everyone again. It was a pleasure. Uh, next uh, episode that will be recorded two weeks from now, uh, Mr. Marcus Edwards is going to share with us on the topic of why we have a world at all. And that is related to Bitcoin as Bitcoin has this amazing ability to, to already be describing a, a new physical future for humanity. We'll be curious to hear that. I remind everyone that we have uh, our website, BitcoinWorldView.live. We have a Telegram group and uh, we'd love to see you for our next uh, conversation. But until then, goodbye, everyone.